Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This week, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer jumps us back into the series, A Life That Pleases God. In this series, we have been looking at what faith is. The author of Hebrews defines faith this way. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Do you ever have those moments when you think or even convince yourself that you are not qualified enough for something? Or maybe you thought someone else would not meet the standards for something. Today we take a look at the faith of a woman many would disqualify. Thank God he thought of Rahab. If you are in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here is Heath with today's message, Faith Puts Away the Past. This morning, you can open up to Hebrews chapter 11, and we will be referring back to Hebrews 11.31, but we'll spend the majority of our time actually in Joshua chapter 2, as we examine the life and the story of Rahab. Hebrews 11, you know we've been talking through Hebrews 11 and trying to discover what is it that faith is, what does it look like when it is lived out. Hebrews 11.1 defined faith for us as the assurance of things hoped for. It's what we know confidently will someday take place. We are assured that that thing will take place, but it's also the conviction of things not seen. You can't see it. We don't have that empirical evidence of it. We're like a jury in a courtroom who arrive at a conviction, even though they weren't eyewitnesses. But given the evidence that's been presented through the world and through the Bible, we know that God is real and that he's coming again. And we want to live in light of that day. And the Bible calls that faith. But he doesn't just leave us there. He gives us several examples as life is lived out. What faith looks like gives us men and women and all kinds of different examples of what faith is. And God just selects one little excerpt from this person's life and says, when they did this, that's what it looks like to live by faith. So that we can know how to live by faith. The Bible says that all these things were written before time, were written for our learning, okay? That we might learn, that we might, uh, they might be examples to us. Hebrews 11.31 has a very unlikely hero of the faith, as you're going to discern very quickly by her description in Hebrews 11.31. It says, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. I guess the question remains, why is God praising a woman of this particular occupation? Trying to be sensitive, mom and dad, uh, to this particular occupation. Why would God praise this woman's faith? Well, for that, we're going to have to look at Joshua chapter 2. We're going to look at the past, the present, and the future of Rahab. We're going to see in Joshua 2, 1 through 2, that Rahab's past will be forgotten. Is that a fair statement? Yes, Hebrews 8, 12 talks about how God promises us that I will remember your sins no more, that God distinctly remembers choosing to put our sins in the past, and he's not going to bring it up again. Well, we're in Joshua, book of Joshua chapter two. In chapter one, we saw that Joshua and his people, they, they finally saw their parents blow it, did not live by faith. They're making golden calves in the wilderness. They're rebelling against Moses. You know, God is literally swallowing up groups of people into the ground, sends fiery serpents into their midst to kill them. And God had a mind to him to wipe out the entire nation of Israel and start over again. Okay, those parents had kids that watched that and said, whatever they're doing, we're not gonna live that way. And so they give Joshua, you remember this assurance in chapter six, verse 16 of Joshua 1. He says, all that you've commanded us, we will do. 
And wherever you send us, we will go, just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. These people learned the lessons from their parents. We're not gonna live lives that are faithless. We're going to follow you, and they're going to. We're gonna see that the decision that the parents defaulted on, they're like, we're not going to go into the land. There's full of giants and scary things, and we can't, obviously, we can't trust God with giants. It's not like we just saw him destroy Pharaoh and throw all his chariots in the midst of the sea. And so they wouldn't trust God for that. And so they just spun the rest of their life in just a useless existence, just living, getting up, eating, and eventually dying. And you know, people today still are doing that, aren't they? If they're not gonna choose to live by faith, God will allow some of us just to spin out our lives on this earth and just get up, eat, and lay down, and eventually we die, and our life has no more spiritual significance than that. Well, these kids, they're like, we're not gonna do that. We're gonna follow the Lord. And then chapter two and verse one, we see that they're going to finally go in and take the land. Yeah, it's full of giants, big, scary people, but our God is bigger. And our, frankly, our God is scarier. Chapter two, verse one says, Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly to Shittim as spies saying, go and view the land, especially Jericho. Why do you suppose especially Jericho? Well, if you know anything about the geography of Israel and uh, Jericho, Jericho, the city, especially from the approach that Joshua and his people are, are coming to, it finds itself in this valley, in this pass. If you're going to get in and take the rest of the nation of Israel, you have to go through Jericho. You don't get to go around and go, ooh, that's the biggest, scariest city in the land. I'm going to steer clear. You can't do that. You have to go through Jericho. Jericho was the key to the rest of the nation. That's why, there is, there's, a, there's a reason why Jericho was the mightiest city in that nation, because it was their gate, it was their defense. If you get through Jericho, the whole rest of the land lay open to you. And so Joshua says, I want you to especially spy out that mighty city. Verse two, it says, they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Evidently, the two guys that Joshua sent in weren't very good at disguises. So, I mean, they found these guys out pretty quick. Hey, they're in the land, they're spying us out. We better do something about this. Now, the real question is, as you read this, is they went and they came to the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Why would these two godly men go into the house of a prostitute? It's a valid question. Now, if you read some uh, modern YouTube videos and things and people, they want to try to make it look like these men were uh, immoral. Well, obviously they went there to engage her in these particular services that she has. You know, and that's kind of just the modern feel of things. Let's take everything that used to be beautiful and everything that was good and everything that was holy and let's sling as much dirt on it as possible. Let's take our founding fathers and let's drag their names through the mud. Let's take these Old Testament heroes, let's make them look like they're immoral. Let's take Jesus and make it look like he had a girlfriend and an illegitimate child and theoretically you'd make a movie about it. That's what society wants to do with these uh, I would argue that these godly men are not going there to engage her services. First of all, this, the, Israel is in a period, a state of revival right now. They're finally deciding, we will obey you, God. We're gonna follow your leader, Joshua. We're gonna do things your way. We're gonna live by faith. We're gonna enter the land. We're trusting you, Lord. This is not the spirit and attitude of a couple of men who are looking for something immoral. Furthermore, we need to understand a little bit about the culture of that day. 
okay? Uh, these men, it says here specifically what their intention of going to the house, uh, to Rahab's house was. Was it to engage her services? No, it says they went there and lodged there. Their purpose in going there was simply lodging. They needed a place to stay. And I would argue that they chose her place because her place happened to be on the outside of the wall. It was a strategic place to get in and out of if they needed to. They could, um, they could be safe there. But why go there? Why couldn't you have gone to the Motel 8 or the Holiday Inn? Why did you lodge there? Again, for that, we have to understand a little bit about the culture. This, this land here is not Ashland, Kentucky. Okay? It's not anywhere near Bible Belt, USA. Here in America, we're a little bit insulated. Our hotels, by and large, are hotels. We go there to lodge. But do you know in most parts of the world, that's not how it is. Even where we were serving in China as missionaries, we would go into all these hotels. And do you know that every single hotel uh, in China is connected to prostitution in one way or another? Every single hotel. You go down to the, your, your Chinese friends, they love to do karaoke. They love to sing songs, American songs. For whatever reason, they love uh, that song, Country Roads, you know, about West Virginia. They love singing that. It's hilarious. But you go into a, a karaoke, you literally only have to push a button and you can have a lady enter into your room and engage her services. You go to a hotel. Every hotel is tied to prostitution. They will throw their cards under your doors. They will give you midnight phone calls to try to engage your services. Lodging and unfortunately this trade have always gone hand in hand. And no more was that true in the land of Canaan. Remember, Canaanites were wicked, godless people. These are people who were extremely immoral. Uh, perverse behavior was uh, pervasive all throughout their culture, even their religions had temple prostitution. And so this was something that was just a, a part of their culture. And so you have here, uh, this, the land of the Canaanites, people who in Genesis 9 were cursed by God. Remember, uh, they, were, they were part of Canaan who was specifically cursed because of something, we don't know exactly what, something he did to Noah. And so this is a, a people doomed, condemned by God, destined for destruction. And they were just, they were godless, they were immoral, they served false gods. Uh, these are the kind of people that when they went to build the walls of a city would take, I hate to say it, but they would take babies alive and put them in a jar and bury them under the walls as an offering to their God. That's the land we're talking about here. Wicked, wicked Canaan. And so when these guys just went to get lodging, you're not gonna find lodging that does not have somebody engaging their services in this way. Now, some theologians will go even further and say that Rahab wasn't actually a prostitute at all, that Rahab herself was just an innkeeper, that the term is uh, for innkeeper alone, and that's all she was, is was an innkeeper. That's also not true. The Hebrew word to describe what Rahab was doing is literally Isa, a female, and Zanach, which is a female and literally, they take a verb and use it as a noun, a fornicator. By trade, Rahab was a female fornicator who happened to run an inn because that's what people in that line of business did. And so these men could not avoid this. So I think this is important to understand moving forward that these are not immoral or compromising men as they went and lodged in the house of Rahab. I also say that to say this, Rahab had a very checkered past, didn't she? This woman is not only of this ill-respected trade, but this woman is also a Canaanite, literally condemned by God from the beginning of time in the beginning of the book of Genesis. They're evil, wicked people that sacrifice people to false gods and immorality is an, don't go up online and Google Canaanite gods. 
you know, it will shock you. It's, uh, it's appalling. This is just a, a very wicked, degenerate race of people. And yet God, is he gonna save this woman? He's gonna save her and then some, we're going to see. God's gonna save this woman. But I, before we talk about her actual salvation during the attack on Jericho, I want you to notice some things about Rahab, how God is going to so fully take Rahab's immoral checkered past and so fully put it behind her I want you to see what God says about Rahab in other parts of the Bible. So we clearly see here in Joshua chapter two and God highlights her faith. We see her in Hebrews eleven thirty one, where God uses her as an example of the faith and engraves her name, if you will, on a plaque and puts it next to names like Abraham, next to names like Moses, Noah. And then in that same hall of fame list, if you will, you get Rahab. Moreover, James chapter two, Jesus' little brother wrote a book to the church. And in James chapter two and verse 25, when he's trying to describe in his discussion on faith and works, what's the relationship of faith and works? And he says, I'll show you my faith by my works. In that discussion, he goes, let's see, who is a great example from the Old Testament of somebody whose works demonstrated true faith? And you know who he chose? Rahab. He says, and in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute? And he doesn't, he doesn't gloss over that. He doesn't, he doesn't just say Rahab. He reminds us of who, who she was before Christ. Was also not the same way Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received messengers and sent them out by another way? Now again, he's not talking about works-based salvation. Just prior to that, he explained what he meant by this, saved by works. He meant that true salvation, somebody who has a truly converted heart, will exhibit good works. He says, I will show you my faith by my works. And when he wanted to pick one person to exemplify that, he picks this woman right here, Rahab, someone with a very checkered past. More, even more importantly than this, do you know that we see Rahab in Matthew chapter one, verse five? What do we know about Matthew chapter one? Yeah, oh, you know that because y'all got asked to read that in Sunday school and you're stumbling through and let's just go ahead and move on. It's all these begats, these people, and God is giving us the genealogy. Now, even that is profitable for us because it shows us uh, the lineage leading up to, of course, David. But I want, I want you to see here what it says. It says, in Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Rahab had a very significant child named Boaz. It says in Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and we all know who Jesse had. Jesse, the father of David the king. She's put right here in the lineage of one of the greatest kings that Israel ever had. Furthermore, those of you who know anything about Matthew 1, you know where this lineage is going. Who else comes through about a thousand years later in the line of David? Jesus. So when God says, here, let me open up the family photo album. Oh, would you look at the time? We got Jeconiah here, and, and over here we got Obed and Jesse and David and Rahab. Is that what you do? When you have people in your family lineage and tree, do you point to that and say, oh, do you remember old great-great-grandpa something or other? He was a Nazi war criminal. You remember him? Does that come up in your first conversation? You're not proud of that, are you? My daughter, uh, Mackenzie, I think it was, was it last Christmas, did like this research project for our family on our lineage, our family tree. Have you ever done that? It's kind of fun to see, you know, who do I relate to? And she found on Amber's side, Amber's side of the family, the Myers side, 
that they are distantly related to Elizabeth Crockett. So our, her family lineage comes all the way back to the hills of Kentucky somewhere, and they are related distantly to Elizabeth Crockett, the daughter of Davy Crockett. Okay? She's very proud of that. She'll remind you of that. Sometimes she'll say Daniel Boone, but she means Davy Crockett. <laughs> she just wants all the frontier heroes. So she's very proud of the fact that she's related to the Crockett's. It, it, it elevates her family lineage and stuff. She went back a little further for me and says, Dad, here's the best I can find for your side. I got a picture here. Uh, I am distantly related to Scudder Falls. It doesn't look much like a falls either. It just kind of looks like somebody dumped garbage in a river and got some dudes kayaking around it. Uh, you'll forgive me if this doesn't come up immediately as I introduce you. Oh, by the way, I'm Heath. That's right, Heath, related to the Scudder Falls. We don't normally associate ourselves and our family tree with things that are just ignoble or unknown. Uh, we say, hi, I'm Amber. By the way, I'm related to Elizabeth Crockett. And that's what we do. God here could have easily elevated himself and his family tree just by mentioning all the great people in the line of David leading up to the line of Jesus. And yet God unashamedly puts Rahab the harlot, Rahab the prostitute right here in the middle of Jesus' own family tree. What does that communicate to you? That no matter what you've done, no matter how bad you've been, no matter how long or how immorally you lived your lives, no matter how many false gods you worshiped, God is proud of you and is happy to put you in his family tree. In fact, it says that right here in our, our book of Hebrews, Hebrews eleven sixteen, talking about all of those who live by faith, it says that God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. And this is really neat in Hebrews eleven sixteen, talking about those, yes, you live, used to live a life for sin and for yourself. Now you live a life of faith. And it says God is not ashamed to be called their God. This word literally means surnamed. God's not ashamed to have you in his family tree. He's not ashamed for you to take on the name of Christian, which means a little Christ. Doesn't matter where you've done. Doesn't matter where you've been. Doesn't matter who else remembers your past. God knows your past and distinctly remembers forgetting it. And he is not ashamed to be called your God. Micah 7.19, God says about, the, about God, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Remember, there's several different Hebrew words for sin of varying degrees in severity. The worst of them is iniquity. It's describing a sin that you have done intentionally and willfully with a high hand. I knew what I was doing and I'm intentionally crossing that line in rebellion against God. And he says, even these worst of these sins, the most premeditated sins, God throws it down on the path to be tread upon. What do you throw down? You get done eating an apple, you take the apple core and you chuck it, maybe? I don't know if you're one of those. And you're not intending to go back and get that apple core again. It's just gonna be tread underfoot. It's gonna turn into mulch someday. That's what God says he does with our sins. He throws them down on the path. He's never gonna pick it up again. He's never gonna remind us again. In fact, he says specifically here that he will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. If you're in a boat on the ocean and you drop coins overboard, you're not getting those again. They're never coming back. God says that's what he does with our sins. When we turn from our sin in repentance and we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, it says he took all of those things from our past, past, present, and future. He took all of those sins and he has put them in the depths of the sea. God won't bring it up again and man can't bring it up again. I'm so glad I'm never gonna have to face my sins again. 
Number two, let's look at Rahab's present. What was she doing in the present that God praised her for? What was Rahab doing that was an act of faith that James mentions her, Matthew mentions her, Hebrews mentions her, and Joshua mentions her? I want you to see here that Rahab received the same messages as the rest of Jericho. Everybody in the land of Jericho knew that God was coming and that it wasn't just Israel. They were circulating the stories. Oh, through traders and things, word got out fast. Gossip was just as fast then as it is today. Hey, by the way, did you hear about the Hebrews? Their God took Pharaoh and all his armies and threw them into the midst of the Red Sea, uh, the Red sea and they're, they're dead. Did you hear about what God has done? He's been feeding them throughout the desert. He even brought birds in for them to eat. That God and those people are coming here now. He's dried up the Jordan and allowed his people to cross over into our land. Those people are here and they're knocking at our door today. In fact, Joshua 2.24, the spies acknowledged that the whole land knew that they were scared. It says, truly the Lord has given us all the land into his hands. All the inhabitants of the land, it says, melt away because of us. They're just in fear. They're just, they have no strength left in them. They're terrified of this God. The whole land is terrified of what God can do. But I want you to see the whole land will not submit to him as Lord. There's only one family that's gonna do that. And that's Rahab and her family. The rest of the land, though they are afraid of the potential judgment of God, will harden their heart against him. Look at what the king does in verse three. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. What should the king have done here? Repented? Remember, Egypt was far more powerful than Jericho was, and yet God took these thousands of chariots and dumped them in the middle of the sea. What, you're gonna stand up to God? He should have repented, but he didn't. Instead, he is coming there and demanding that this woman turn over these spies. Isn't that what you would have wanted to do? Put yourself in Rahab's shoes for just a minute. Rahab spent her whole life growing up in Jericho. She knew her neighbors. She lived down the street from people she used to go to school with. She had, if you will, a very profitable business. She had her favorite restaurants that she would eat at. She had her favorite places that she liked to walk. Some of her extended family would have been there, her friends, everything familiar, everything about her life. For many of us who have been born and raised in Ashland, Kentucky, this is like somebody saying, God is coming to Ashland. He's gonna destroy Ashland. Now turn your back on the people in the city of Ashland. Could you do that? Rahab did, and this is why God praised her. She commits, if you will, something that I would call spiritual treason. Now, to be clear, I'm not advocating actual treason. The U.S. government will hang you for that. Spiritual treason is different from actual treason in that it's a spiritual world that you're turning your back on. You're turning your back on the world system. There is a system. I don't know if you've known seen it or not, but the system of this planet is opposed to God. The system of this world says all that matters is what you do here on earth. All that matters is living a great life here. All that matters is getting a great education so you can get a great house and get a great family and take amazing vacations, take pictures and put them on Facebook to make all your friends jealous. Okay, that's the world's system. And you just live for that for about mm, 70, 80 years before your body gives, in, gives out like the rest of ours does and eventually you die. But that's the purpose of life. Just to experience this life as much as you can, make a bucket list, 
You know, all the things that you need to do on this earth before you kick the bucket, before you die. That's why as believers, I'm, I'm not really excited about the concept of a bucket list. It communicates that the primary purpose of our life is what? To experience life here. To get as much out of this world, wring as much out of your high school experience as you can, wring as much out of this world as you can, live it up to its fullest, work super hard so that you can play super hard and drive a nice fast car, unbutton your shirt, wear a gold chain and impress your buddies, okay? That's the whole system of this world. Live life to its fullest, go and visit Paris, travel the world, see things, go to Disney 15 times a year, take cruises. That's the system of this world. And not all of that is bad. It's not wrong to drive a sports car. It's not wrong to go to Disney on vacation. But friends, there's a difference between enjoying these things and letting it control your life. Enjoying these things and letting it dominate the very reason, the core of why you live. I work hard so that I can feast myself. I work hard so that I can lavish all kinds of pleasures and fun upon myself. That's not the purpose of this life. It's the purpose of the world. And Rahab turns her back on that just like Moses did, who refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And God is calling us to make that same kind of decision of faith. God is asking us to choose sides. Spiritual treason is this. It's when everybody you know around you is living for the system I just described. A lot of us, our own families, extended families, they're living for this world system. Just live a good life, experience the world as much as you can to enjoy it as much as you can. Our neighbors are living for that system. People that we work with are living for that system. And they're just a part of this world system. Get as much out of this world as you can. Friends, you've got so much better ahead of you than what is here. Let's say, theoretically, you go through your whole life and you don't get to experience all the Disney cruises your buddies are doing. Let's say you don't get to ever buy your dream home. Let's say, theoretically, that you're not in the happiest of marriages. Theoretically, no elbows, please. Let's just say, theoretically, some of these things are true in that your earthly existence didn't match your expectations. Can I tell you, if you're in Christ, that's okay. It's okay. Because the purpose of your life is not to wring out as much enjoyment from this life as possible before you finally die. Your purpose is to know God, to make him known, and to live for the world that is coming. And friends, can I tell you, millennia and millions and billions of, trier, of, of years and eons in the future, you're not gonna care what happened in these few 50, 60, 70, 80 years you had here on earth. Like the old song says, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Rahab is about to commit spiritual treason. She's gonna turn her back on this world. She knows that God is coming for this country, this Canaanite country that truly belongs to the Jews. She realizes she's living in a territory that belongs to the people of God. By the way, this is not a political message today, but it's a spiritual fact. The land that the Canaanites are living in belongs to the Jews. God gifted it to him some 2,000 years earlier and even 1,600 years before Muhammad. And this lady here, you're gonna see further on in her testimony, she recognizes that the land that she's living on is rented. It belongs to God's people. And so she's going to give up her rightful claim to this land and living her best life now and she's gonna protect God's men. Look at verse four. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. 
And she said, true, the men came out to me. I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly. In other words, they went that away. Okay. She's turning everybody off in the wrong direction. For you will overtake them, but, that word but means what she just said was not true. She had brought them up to the roof and hid them with stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. You know, back then, your roof was not pitched like this. Your roof was flat. And you would, you would take things up to the top of the roof where the sun could get to it, and you could dry things out on the roof. In this case, stalks of flax. And so she had all this. It wasn't uncommon for it to be there. And she buried these men underneath there in a great governmental hide-and-seek. And so she's hiding these people. Now, what I want you to notice here is this. Look what the woman said. She says, I don't know where they were from, and they went oh, that away. Is, are those true statements? Concerning me here. We were reading the same scripture, aren't we? Joshua 2. All right. Rahab is not just a prostitute. She's a liar. Are you okay with that? Is it okay to lie? We know it's not okay to lie. Then what is God doing praising the life and the actions of a lying prostitute? Is God condoning her lies? I would argue that God is not condoning her lies, but I do want to make note of this. While God is not condoning her lies, he does praise her faith. Now, we, we talked a little bit, if you've been here on Wednesday nights, that the Hebrew word for truth incorporates more than just our English, more of a Western Greek understanding of truth. Truth in the Greek and Western mindset is something that corresponds to here on earth. Mackenzie's wearing a mustard color sweater. That is truth. It, you can look and you can visibly identify that what I'm saying corresponds to this. In the Hebrew mind, truth is something that is a much broader term. It corresponds to anything that is true about God. God is, the, is what you look to as what is truth. And so truth was not simply what is a truthful word. Truth was anything that is good, right, and holy. Truth is the, the life of individuals. It is what is godly behavior. It is all truth. And so Rahab was put in a difficult position here. If I tell my authorities all that they want to hear, I have to violate a higher truth. What was the higher truth? The lives of these godly men. And so she had to make a very difficult decision to not to violate a higher truth because by telling all of these earthly authorities everything they want to hear, she would have to align herself against God. She wasn't going to do that. It's the same position that the Egyptian midwives did in Exodus. Remember, Pharaoh was trying to kill all the babies? And the Egyptian midwives weren't okay with that. And they opposed the king. And they lied to him. And they said, wow, these Egyptian ladies, these, these, these Hebrew ladies, they're so fast. By the time we get word, they've already had the baby. And, you know, we can't do anything about it. So, sorry. And God praises their faith because they weren't going to violate this higher truth, this higher principle of life. It's the same truth that uh, a lot of those in World War II who were hiding Jews that they would live by. You know, somebody comes knocking on your door. It's the, it's the SS and they're looking for the Jews and they come to you and they say, are you hiding Jews in your attic? What do you say? People like the Dutch watchmaker, the Ten Booms, Corey Ten Boom and all them, uh, they would not tell the truth to the Nazis because they didn't want to violate a higher principle. They wanted to protect God's people. It's a decision that they gladly made to commit spiritual treason and to align with God's people and to protect life. It's a decision that I pray none of us ever have to make. Now, what would cause Rahab to commit spiritual treason? Why would she turn her back on her people and the whole world system? 
The Bible tells us very clearly that it was faith, faith in God, faith in, the, in God that he is coming and that the world that I'm living in is gonna be destroyed one day and I'm gonna live for the world that is to come. She chose sides. Joshua chapter two and verse eight, it says, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know, now listen to this, she understands who this land belongs to. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that fear of you has fallen upon us and that the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. She says, uh, what you did to the two kings of the Amorites. She says, our hearts melted. And then listen to her statement of faith, she says about God. For the Lord your God. Okay, she is confessing the lordship of God and how he has a rightful claim to her and all the land. This lady's a believer. The Lord your God, he is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as if I have dealt kindly with you, that you will deal kindly with me in my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father, mother, brothers, and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. This sounds a lot like us coming to Jesus, doesn't it? I recognize that I'm a sinner. I'm living in God's land. You have a rightful claim to this earth and we have lived in rebellion against you and you are coming in judgment and rightfully so, but I am choosing to follow you by faith now, knowing that judgment is coming. On this side of the judgment, I wanna confess my faith in you and I'm gonna ask you that you will save me, that you will protect me from the judgment that is to coming. We do that when we come to Jesus, isn't it? It's because at one point in time, you came to a realization that this earth is gonna end up in a judgment, a judgment against sin. And on this side of judgment, you wanna make a decision to make Jesus your Lord and you confess that to him and you ask him to protect you from the judgment that is to come. She did that because she knew that her kingdom was disappearing. What's happening to our kingdom? This earthly world, is it disappearing? Is it dying away? I mean, look around. We see signs of it already, don't we? Jesus himself said this earth is gonna pass away in Matthew 24, 35. Jesus simply says, heaven and earth will pass away. I know it's gonna pass away because of global warming and all these things we're doing to the earth. We're a plague on the earth. We are not. The earth was created for humans to live in. And by the way, let me just give comfort to you Christians. Is the earth going to be destroyed by humans before God is done with it? He will not. Why? Because we have the book of Revelation. And it tells us what is going to happen to this earth. We're not gonna destroy it by nuclear weapons. We're not gonna destroy it through global warming. We're not gonna destroy it because you're driving a Suburban rather than a Toyota Prius. God's, God is the one who says, in him all things hold together. God is holding this earth together and it will hold together until God is done with it and then God will simply not allow it to hold together. Second Peter 3.10 says this, but the day of the Lord... The day of the Lord is a period of time where God is bringing his judgment and his wrath against sin upon this cursed earth. The day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar. What kind of sound does it make when we split like one atom? That's a pretty loud noise, isn't it? What if all the, all the atoms on earth suddenly combust at the same time? That's a roar. He says the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth that we're sitting on here right now, the building that we're in, the pews that we're on, the clothes that we're wearing, he says everything on earth and the works that are done on it. Worked so hard to get your name in lights, to have a street named after you, to have the library wing named after your, your papa. All of that, the works on earth, all that we see here, he says will be exposed. Everything burns. 
And so it might be a healthy activity if we just go home and we label everything that we own devoted to fire, okay? Go ahead in your clothes and uh, right on the label there, just write devoted to fire, okay? Go ahead and uh, the new sofa you just bought at Big Sandy, uh, just right underneath that in a Sharpie, devoted to fire. Uh, the, the car that you just restored, the house that you laid the, with bricks by brick by your own hands, devoted to fire. This year for Christmas, this will be a fun activity. This year for Christmas with the Christmas presents under the tree, Right, to little, Bill, little Billy. This is devoted to fire. Love, Mamaw and Papaw. You see how that turns out. Now, it's not wrong to give Little Billy presents, but it's important that Little, little Billy understands, enjoy this, but don't live for it. Enjoy this, but don't make your life the continual pursuit of toys. All of this is devoted for fire. None of it lasts. And so 2 Peter 3.10 tells us that. And in the very next verse, 2 Peter 3.11, he says, everything that you love and know right now will be destroyed one day. In light of that, since, he says, all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? We ought to be living godly lives and being godly people. That's really, that's really at the end of life, all that matters. Did your child grow up to be a star football player? Maybe, great, honor Jesus with that position. If not, who cares? What the real question we've gotta ask ourselves is not, are we raising up our children to be smart and successful by the world standards and wealthy by the world standards and live in a nice part of town? Whether they're a pro football player or the academic top 10% of their class, what matters most to God is, since all of these things are gonna be dissolved, all those things that you're working hard for, because of that, what kind of people ought we to be in godliness and holiness? At the end of your life, that's all that's going to matter, moms and dads. It's all you're going to care about. It's all God's going to care about. Was your kids smarter than others? Were they better looking? Were they more popular? Were they the homecoming queen? Were they, you know, did they play Ashland football? Since all these things are to be dissolved, what manner of people ought we to be in godliness and holiness? Don't forget that, friends. We're not, we're not victims of this world system. Did you know that we can say no to things? We can say no to schools. We can say no to football coaches. We can say no to employers. We had to do that as parents. Oh, our, 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 our kids' volleyball team, they always play on Sundays and this and that. We said, well, our kids won't. If they can't participate in volleyball, that's okay. But I'm going to make sure that my child grows up to be godly and holy. Sometimes they got to play, sometimes they didn't, but it's a choice that we made. It was a choice to commit spiritual treason. I'm not gonna be a victim of this world system. I'm not gonna let the world dictate to me how I live. I'm going to rebel against the system of this world and live in something that produces in our family godliness and holiness, not just earthly success that is gonna be dissolved one day. And people won't like it. I'm sure people didn't like the fact that Rahab sold out her own country and chose not to live for her country. And yet... God says about her, God is not to be ashamed to call her God. Finally, number three, is it gonna pay off? I mean, that's a high price, is that not? I mean, you're probably not really enjoying point number two today, where we're calling you to commit spiritual treason on the world and turn your back on this world system and live for Jesus. That's a tough decision, isn't it? Not to just live for what we see here today, but is it worth it? Well, let me ask you this, was it worth it for Rahab? Did Rahab make the right decision to commit spiritual treason against her people and to serve God instead, to not live for her land that was dying away, to live for the land that was coming? I would argue that Rahab made the best choice. It says in chapter two and verse 14, the men gave her a promise 
on our life, our life or even yours unto death. If you do not tell our business of yours when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. You can trust us unto death. We will die to protect your life, just like Jesus did for us. Verse 18 says, Behold, when we come into this land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you will gather... When you shall gather into your house your father and mother and brothers and your father's household, if anyone goes out of the doors of the house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head. We shall be guiltless. But if, if any hand is laid upon you who is in, with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But I tell you, but if you tell this business of ours, we shall be guiltless in respect to your oath that you have made us swear. In other words, you stay inside this house, you tie this scarlet thread outside your window, this, this rope. It says you're gonna be safe. And she says, according to your words, so be it. She confesses her mouth with her mouth, her belief in this. And she sent them away and departed. And immediately she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Her faith caused her to live it out. She takes this scarlet rope, which wouldn't have been uncommon, especially as a decorative rope in the house of a prostitute. You would have these finely dressed rooms and things like that. I just think it's interesting that this very thing that God used or that she used in the past to draw men and entice men into sin, God repurposes and uses it to save these men and the lives of her whole family later. Can God do that? Does he do that with us? Take some of us, maybe we used our mouths for blasphemy, we used our mouths for cursing, we used our mouths to tell dirty jokes and God can use that same mouth, redeem it and use you to draw you out to be fishers of men. Can God use these hands, which used to fight and shed blood, can he use these hands to comfort and bless other people? God can take everything from your past, everything that you were, and God can redeem it for his own purposes. These men who used to be fishers of fish now can become fishers of men. Joshua 28, 2, 24 says... Uh, when, when these people came, we're gonna see the spiritual trees and pay off. It says, and they burned the city with fire. There was a fiery judgment that was coming that Rahab hadn't seen. Most people wouldn't believe that it was coming, but she knew it was coming. She lived for that fiery judgment to avoid it. And when it came, Rahab the prostitute in her father's household says, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. Rahab was saved. Not only that, but Rahab's words of testimonies, have faith in God, stay in this house, don't leave this house, that required for them to believe too. They weren't saved by Rahab's faith. They were saved when Rahab shared the gospel, if you will, the good news of the judgment that's to coming, and they trusted her enough to stay in that house. And they were saved as well. But I want you to see more than this. Was Rahab just saved from a burning city and then the nation of God just leaves her sitting on the rubble of a burned and destroyed city and they walk away to take the land? They don't. What does the rest of Joshua chapter two say? And she, Rahab and her family, has lived in Israel to this day, to the day of the writing of Joshua, because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Rahab, who refused to be conformed to that world, to live for the world system, realized this world is dying. I'm not gonna live for it. I'm gonna live for the world that's to come. And because of that, she was saved. And not only saved, but she was promised to allow to live with the people of God. Friends, is that not our promise from God today? There is a fiery judgment coming. There is a hell that exists. There is a God who is wrathful against our sins and who will not tolerate it, but he is just as much merciful as he is wrathful. 
And he is offering us this little lifeline right now for a few brief moments that if we will place our faith in Jesus Christ, we will put that scarlet thread outside of our window that we and anyone else who believes in our household can be saved. But not only that, but what does God do with those whom he has saved? He brings us into his own house, doesn't he? In my father's house, there are many rooms. God has this, this grand uh, dwelling and he says we can belong to that and he will be our God and we will be his people. He calls us children of God. The Bible uses terms like adoption into God's family. God doesn't just save us from wrath, God puts us in his family. That's what happens here to Rahab and she ends up in the line of Jesus. Just amazing. You know, people have been living like this all throughout the eternity. God's people have always made a choice to commit spiritual treason, to turn their back on the spiritual system of this world and to live for a world that's to come. Remember in World War II, there was a, a German theologian and pastor uh, named, named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he was a pastor, he, you, maybe you've read some of his books, maybe you've read about him. And he was a man who committed spiritual treason and he did it while living right there in Germany under Hitler's nose. He would actively write these essays and papers condemning the actions of the, of the German government and the Nazis. He condemned Hitler's genocide of the Jews. He opposed openly and verbally Hitler's euthanasia program. He actively opposed them. In fact, uh, at one point in time, his brother got him in a position with intelligence with the German government so that he could use that position to smuggle Jews out of the country. And at one point in time, Dietrich himself was outside of the country, but he chose to come back in to suffer with the people of God. At some point in time, after a failed coup, he got connected uh, by the government to the German underground, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hung for his faith. Did he make the right choice in committing spiritual treason and turning him back, his back, not on simply Germany, but it turned his back on that whole wicked system of Nazism? Did he make the right choice? He lost his life for it. But is he safe today? I would argue today that even though he lost his life for it, Dietrich would have made that decision 10 times over. It's never worth it to live for this world system. You're gonna enjoy that ride for a while, but that ride ends with a sudden stop and it ends in death. You don't wanna live for this world system. And God calls every one of us, like Rahab, to make a choice, like Dietrich, to make a choice, to choose sides. Who are you going to live for? This world, it's, it has its own Jericho moment. God is going to wrap up history on earth here. There's gonna be a period of time in Revelation 20 where Satan is gonna be released from the pit after a thousand years and he's going to lead men in a final rebellion against God, a final battle against God. And it says, and they marched over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven to earth and surround the camp of the saints in their beloved city. And the devil who had deceived them, it says, was thrown into the lake of fire the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. You don't wanna live for this world system. God is warning us here, just like Rahab, there is a judgment coming and I know it seems fantastical. I know it seems impossible to believe, just as unbelievable as the mighty city of Jericho being able to be conquered. But God calls us to believe in that judgment to come and to avoid it like Rahab and her family. What about those aligned with God? Will it end well for us? Is our future secure? 
Revelation 21, one through five talks about those who are born again, those who have placed their faith in him. And it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and earth passed away and the sea was no more and he will dwell with them. Again, that's a picture of not only does God save us, he brings us into his family. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God will himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne means God who is in control of wrapping up this earth's history. He who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Just remember this, beloved brothers and sisters. Spiritual treason against the world is spiritual fidelity to God. Spiritual treason against the world is spiritual fidelity to God. And the opposite is also true. He who makes himself a friend of the world, the Bible tells us, is an enemy of God. We don't want to be an enemy of God. Rahab lived in the time of Joshua. Work, don't worry, we're closing it down. Uh, you kids have been just amazing, very good. I'm so proud of you guys. Done such a good job today. Rahab lived in the time of Joshua. Remember where they finally went and they entered and they took the land that God had given to them, had commanded for them to take as, as they are running out the wickedness of the Canaanites who didn't belong there. And Joshua gets, gets through the conquest of the land and he's looking back. He's now an old man in Joshua 24, the last chapter of Joshua. He's an old man. He's realizing we didn't fully run everybody out. Sometimes we got tricked. Some people we made treaties with, we allowed some Canaanites to live here. So I know that my, my beloved Jewish brethren, brothers and sisters and their families, they're gonna be li living next door to Canaanite families. And they're gonna be worshiping Canaanite gods. And they're gonna be living for a Canaanite world system. And they're gonna be just living for, you know, money and immorality. And you guys are gonna be tempted to follow that way. And so just before he dies, Joshua says these famous words that you probably have printed up in your house somewhere. When I read these, you'll recognize them. He commands them in Joshua 24, 15, put away the gods of your fathers, the ones that they served, the gods of the Egyptian gods and serving the gods of wealth and the gods of all the immorality. He says, all of the false gods that surround you, the ones that are part of your family history and the people that live around you, he says, put those falsehoods away. He says, choose you this day whom you will serve. He's calling us to make a choice, to draw a line in the sand, to make a choice, to commit ourselves to follow God. He says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua made a choice. Joshua chose sides. He chose God. Rahab chose sides, and she chose the Lord. Dietrich chose sides. He chose God. And God today is calling us to choose sides. The world around you is gonna constantly tell you, you need to live like us. You need to do all the things that your kid, our kids do at school. You need to live the same way. You need to listen to the same music. You need to watch the same movies. You need to say the same kinds of jokes. You need to live for money and things and wealth and power and ambition and homes and vacations. You need to live for all that. Meanwhile, Jesus is motioning to us like the disciples to walk away from our nets and to become fishers of men. God calls us today to make a choice. Have you made yours? How can we tell what choice that you have made? Whether you've chosen God's side or you chose to live by the world, look at your actions. What do you talk about? What do you do? How do you spend your time? How do you spend your money? All of those are indicators, friends, that you've made a choice already. 
The good thing is, if you've chosen the wrong side this morning and you realize that you've been living for this world, it's not too late to choose the right side. Just as Joshua said, choose you this day whom you will serve. Even if your parents served a false god and served the world system, it's not too late to turn back to him. And God calls us. Faith chooses sides. Choose yours today. Father, we thank you today as we study Rahab and this incredible example of faith, how hard it must have been for this woman to turn her back upon all of her neighbors and her classmates and her, her land, her home, her business, everything she's ever known. And yet simply by faith in believing that this mighty God is coming, there's a judgment to come. I'm, I don't wanna get caught in the wrong side of that judgment. And she turns her back on everything she's ever known to follow you. She commits a spiritual treason. And yet she is praised in Hebrews 11 as, being, uh, as having spiritual fidelity towards you. God, give us the bravery of this woman to be able to turn our backs upon everything that this world applauds and to trust you with our future. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments.